Hello, and welcome to the December 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. It's amazing how quickly time goes, Arthur. Can you yes. believe it's December 2012 already? It seems like no. just yesterday it was 2011 and we were talking yeah. about lesbian and gay legal issues. It seems like just yesterday we were speculating about the presidential election. That's right, and we're going to get to that. Um, yeah. Let's introduce ourselves first. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Um, just a reminder before we get into things, uh, check us out at the new legal.org, le-gal.org, or follow us on Twitter at legal.org. Okay, so you wanted to talk about this little thing called the presidential election and some other developments across the United States with respect to marriage initiatives, amendments, and the like. Well, is that I, right? I, I think we should mention, uh, although this podcast is not primarily about politics, it's about law, we should mention that the election results, of course, potentially affect the law, the development of LGBT law, that uh, the re-election of President Obama means he will be appointing new Supreme Court, Court of Appeals, and District Court judges. And in fact, within just a few days of the election, he appointed one or two openly gay District Court judges whose nominations are now pending in the Senate. And uh, of course, we had the votes on the marriage uh, initiatives in three states. We had in Maine an affirmative initiative to authorize same-sex marriage, which passed. We had uh, ballot questions in Maryland and Washington State to confirm uh, same-sex marriage statutes that had been passed by the legislatures. They both passed. And we had an amendment on the ballot placed there by the legislature in Minnesota to ban same-sex marriage, and that was defeated. And this is absolutely historic. This is the first time that a polity has affirmatively voted to authorize same-sex marriage in Maine and Washington and Maryland. So this is really a historic occasion in LGBT law that is worth noting and celebrating. I, and, I, I, and I by, agree by, with that. By January 1st, same-sex couples will be able to marry in all three states, and some of them will be able to marry, in fact, before January 1st uh, because – uh, although one of the statutes, the Maryland statute, goes into effect January 1st. In Washington state, the statute goes into effect uh, mid-December. And uh, in Maine, the statute goes into effect very shortly. And well. in those jurisdictions, can folks in uh, nearby states easily cross yes. the border, get married, easily. and leave? E states do not have residency requirements for marriage. Well, we had formally in Massachusetts. We had that odd. We used to have. Yeah. That yeah but, but now people from anywhere can go to Maine. Or, you know, go and uh, do your deer hunting or whatever you're doing in Maine <laughs> and uh, take some time out to get married. <laughs> nice. Um, nice well, that's a honeymoon adventure. Right, right. A honeymoon uh, adventure. Calling for, to mind everyone's yes. image of Maine. Yes. Potentially and couples. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure about the last one. But that's a good segue to some de some developments in the nature of non-developments. And that right. would be our U.S. Supreme Court with right. respect to some cert petitions. Although by the time people hear this podcast, there may be developments. Uh, All right. Well, as of but, this moment, what as, is going as, on? As of this moment, the Supreme Court has at least three times, I think now, scheduled for consideration during their cert conferences, uh, petitions pending on same-sex marriage and domestic partnership from cases from all over the country, and they just keep kicking the can down the road. You know, maybe the next conference they'll, they'll reach a decision. So we have a cert petition from the state of Arizona on domestic partnership benefits. Uh, the legislature had voted to end domestic partnership benefits as part of closing a budget gap 
and Lambda Legal won an injunction against the application of that to same-sex couples who were receiving benefits, and that's being appealed by the governor. And then we have a petition from the losers in the Prop 8 case asking the Supreme Court to reverse the Ninth Circuit and reinstate Proposition 8. Uh, if cert is denied there, same-sex couples can start marrying in California within days after the Ninth Circuit enters its mandate. Our late development in that case, the uh, city clerks in Los Angeles and San Francisco asked the court to give them 24 hours' notice so they Expecting can, a flood. Yeah, they uh, could staff up the marriage office, the marriage <laughs> license office. And then the big one is the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, I say the big one because this affects the whole country pretty directly. Uh, there are petitions from the First Circuit case, the Second Circuit case, and district court cases in Connecticut and uh, California, all pending before the court. Uh, and uh, it's certain, I, I don't think anyone will deny, that the court is going to review the constitutionality of Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act this year. The question is, which petitions are they going to grant? Which are they going to hold pending decision of the one they grant? Who's going to end up arguing this case? Because which petition decides who argues? And uh, to what extent are they going to take up the issue of the level of scrutiny? Uh, because if they take certain cases which were decided as rational basis cases, they can just do them as rational basis cases. If they take the Second Circuit case, they really have to confront the Second Circuit. You're talking holding about the Windsor case, correct? Windsor for heightened scrutiny. Uh, and I'm going to, the last point on this, you're going to tell me no, but I'm going to ask anyway. Can you speculate on what this delay is all about and what it means for the prospects of a good result for us? I think what the delay is all about is that this is incredibly complicated because each of these cases presents somewhat different issues, uh, one of them being the different level of review that was used in the Second Circuit versus the First, one of them being that the First Circuit case might present an issue of Justice Kagan having to recuse herself or deciding to recuse herself because when that was litigated in the lower courts, she was in the Justice Department as Solicitor General, and she might have played a role in strategizing the government's position in that case. Uh, there are issues of standing in the Windsor case that the, that the uh, BLAG, the Bipartisan Legal Advisory Group of the House, keeps raising. Uh, there's some question whether New York recognized Canadian same-sex marriages in 2007 when Windsor's wife passed away. So there, there are all kinds of issues and complications, and they, I'm sure they're trying to figure out which case would be the best vehicle for deciding this question. The Solicitor General has suggested that the Windsor case is the best vehicle, so maybe they'll go with that. All right. Well, that concludes our, um, our segment on catching us up to date on political-slash-legal developments in the world of marriage initiatives. Yes. Now, now let's go to a strictly legal case, right? So uh, we got some, hopefully, what is temporary bad news out of a court in Nevada, and specifically that's in the case of Sevic versus Sandoval. Sevchik. Excuse me. Sevchik. Could you have told Sevchik. me that before we, we started taping? Sevchik v. Sandoval. Because I, right? I thought that was just a typo. I didn't think you really <laughs> thought that was the name. <laughs> this is – all right, great. Sevchik. Um, Beverly This is, this is a Lambda Legal Suit on behalf of 16 lesbian or gay Nevadans seeking the right to marry or to have their existing marriages recognized in that state. Uh, in this case, U.S. District Judge Robert C. Jones concluded that the state had a rational basis for maintaining a distinction between domestic partnerships and marriage and therefore was entitled to summary judgment against the plaintiffs and ordered the clerk to close the case. Um, Art, there's, there, there are obviously similar lawsuits like this going on elsewhere, challenging, um, challenging the, the status in various, uh, in various states across the country. What, is, what does this case have in common with those, or in what way to, way, ways does right. it differ? Well, well this, is, this is the latest wave of same-sex marriage litigation, and it really takes off from the California case. 
uh, in re marriages, uh, marriage cases, which was decided uh, several years back, and then we had that brief period when same-sex couples could marry. The the issue is that this is not just a straightforward uh, proposal by the plaintiffs that under the 14th Amendment, same-sex couples have the right to marry. Uh, rather, they're saying the state has decided to recognize same-sex couples by creating a legal institution which gives them all the state law rights of marriage. In Nevada, it's called domestic partnership. In California, it was called domestic partnership. In Hawaii, it's called civil union. In Illinois, it's called civil union. This is where the pending cases are, Illinois, Hawaii, and, uh, and Nevada. And uh, there's also a case pending in New Jersey where they have civil unions. So uh, the issue is the state is willing to recognize the legal status they're willing to give virtually all the state law rights and responsibilities of marriage to same-sex couples. So what's the rational basis for not just going that next step and letting them call it marriage? Uh, on the one hand, marriage carries heavy symbolism, the title. Uh, it has a social meaning that is generally respected and understood. Uh, on the other hand, as uh, Judge Jones points out in his opinion, the state has really already given them all the legal incidents of marriage, what more can they want? And, and, and we're going to get to that, but I wonder, you know, our opponents on these issues, you know, did sound alarms. I mean, there are those who are who make the just, you know, gays and lesbians and the LGBT community shouldn't have any <laughs> stand, right. uh, rights under the law. But they're so not the, challenging that. Right, no, no, there, there's right. that camp. But then there are those who did argue that the danger in civil unions and other arrangements like that, it would be that there would be the next argument would be, well, you've gone that one next right. first step. You must go the next In step. other words, we are now uh, hearing talk that Colorado is going to be doing civil unions in two, 2013. The Democrats won both houses of the legislature. Uh, one of the houses is going to be led by an openly gay legislator. So uh, that's been stalled for a few years in Colorado, and, and people think it's going to go through. Well, could it be that Colorado legislators who otherwise would vote for it would pull back and say, well, you know, if we do this, some court is going to say we have to go to marriage. You know, so, so there's that argument. Uh, but in this case, uh, the first issue, and because this arises in the Ninth Circuit, it's a really difficult issue, is what is the level of scrutiny to be applied by the court in reviewing the constitutionality? This is brought as an equal protection challenge. And the old case of Baker versus Nelson rears its head. And, and this, is, this goes back to where we started. I mean, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, I mean, could solve all this. They could. Right? I mean, because it, it depends. Case after case, you see right. courts dealing with this issue. And this depends heavily, and this is, you know, going back to the cert petitions thing that we were talking about. Uh, if they grant the cert petition in the Prop 8 case, watch very closely to see how they frame the questions. Because the way that the proponents of Prop 8 put together their cert petition, they said the question for the court is, do same-sex couples have a right to marry under the 14th, uh, under the 14th Amendment? Uh, and the opponents of Prop 8 in responding to that said, no, no, no. The question before the court, if the court decides to take the case, is whether the Ninth Circuit correctly applied Romer versus Evans to say there was no rational basis for rescinding the right to marry once it had been recognized. That's the question. If the court grants cert on that question, then they're not going to take on the question whether same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marry, uh, which means they still won't clear up the problem no, we'll of Baker versus Nelson. These, we'll still so, see these types of So cases. way back in 1972, the Supreme Court 
uh, was asked to review a Minnesota Supreme Court decision rejecting uh, same-sex marriage claim. And in dismissing that appeal, the Supreme Court said this appeal doesn't raise any substantial federal constitutional question. And that supposedly is a decision on the merits for purposes of precedent. And so uh, Judge Jones here says as long as the Supreme Court hasn't backed away from that, that's still the case. And so therefore there isn't a substantial federal question here. Therefore no heightened scrutiny, no strict scrutiny. It's a rational basis case. And as a rational basis case, I think uh, Justice O'Connor said in her concurring opinion in Lawrence that states might have a rational basis in preserving the historic traditional definition of marriage. Judge Jones does a lot more than that here. Oh, though. yeah. Well, he, you know, look, looking at why the state might rationally want to... He uh, sort of tries, he yeah. hits this one out of the park in yeah. terms of calling up every last... Um, like like the, the idea that if they allow same-sex couples to marry, it will so poison the institution and stigmatize it that different-sex couples won't marry. Yes, and you, you point out, because you did write this, yes, well, no, no, I, you write many of them, you point out the, um, the, the great state of Massachusetts, which um, has had... Marriage equality now since two thousand and four. Right, right, eight uh, years. They eight they years. seem to have lower rates of divorce and and, and higher rates of marriage than anywhere else. It's strange. So we, yeah. we're po- we're net we're yeah. net obviously we're net positive. Yeah. It's the only Massachusetts of that. leads the nation in the solidity of different sex marriage, <laughs> and they've had same sex marriage for eight years. I, so. I want to read to you a quote that you you quote from uh, from from Judge Jones in your note, and I'm gonna we're gonna play a game here. I'm gonna read you a quote from the decision. And you're going to tell me the first three words that come to your mind before you get to say any more words. Okay. Okay. Do you agree to play this game? Okay. Okay. This is from Judge Jones. I just want to make clear. He says, in quote, in the context of a characteristic like homosexuality, where no lingering effects of past discrimination are inherited, it is contemporary disadvantages that matter for the purposes of assessing disabilities due to discrimination. Here's the kicker. You ready? And any such disabilities with respect to homosexuals have been largely erased since 1990. Okay. Well, That's one word. My, well, my reaction to that is what rock has he been <laughs> living under? You know, like there's no anti-gay discrimination in the because world. Because I was um, – um, I, I wish this statement was true. Life would so – you know, I. growing up would be a lot easier, right? Well, we wouldn't need legal. No, we, that's we true. We would need We'd... to study sexual orientation <laughs> law. Where does he get the 1990, by the way? What is, where is he hanging his hat on? Well, 1990 is when the Ninth Circuit decided high-tech gays. Okay. You see, the, the issue is – the other issue in the Ninth Circuit besides the Baker versus Nelson issue – is that uh, back in 1990, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, in a case challenging the Defense Department's security clearance procedures on gay people, uh, said that it's rational basis, that there's no heightened scrutiny for sexual orientation claims. And at that time, the Ninth Circuit went through the various characteristics and factors that the Supreme Court looks at in deciding on heightened scrutiny. And uh, they said, well, yes, there is a history of discrimination against gay people. And so here, uh, Judge Jones has said, well, maybe they could say that in 1990, but today there's no more discrimination and, against And, and he actually points to this yeah. as the first case now, as you point out, considering this uh, in the wake of those those victories you noted at the outset of the podcast. Right. He, so it's, he actually p- points to some of those victories and says, surely we can't be heard to argue that we are politically powerless in the right. sense of uh, – Because for- one of the factors that the Supreme Court has traditionally looked at in deciding whether to use heightened scrutiny is whether the class that is bringing the claim – is politically powerless. That is, do they need judicial help to defend their interests because they just can't get anywhere in the legislature? And he says, well, let's take a look at Nevada, okay? Nevada has a law banning sexual orientation discrimination. 
Uh, Nevada has a law allowing same-sex couples to form domestic partnerships that have all the legal rights under state law of marriage. He says... Life is good. Well, he says, clearly gay people are not politically powerless in the polity of Nevada because clearly they have enough allies in the legislature to pass legislation supporting their rights. Just because they've lost the marriage battle so far, they haven't been able to persuade the legislature to go for marriage equality, that doesn't mean they're politically powerless. That just means so far they haven't gotten far enough to get that passed. But they're not politically powerless. So he says it really seems kind of anti-democratic to now say that the court should put a thumb on the scales and make it harder for the state to maintain their traditional definition of marriage. He also, though, um, but wait, there's more. He, he also seems, and you, you, I may read a quote of your, your own yes. art for this one, um, hung up on this, this, this distinction trying to explain away how you can't justify the heightened scrutiny that would apply to characteristics yeah. based on sex. And he, he, he says basically the, the issue of immune – can you say the word for me? Immutability. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. And and basically trying to draw a distinction, you know, that – Between sex discrimination yes. and sexual orientation. And yeah. uh, he, he has a passage on that. And your takeaway from it, and I want you to explain it, is you write, in other words, the, the closet preserves privilege for those who can pass as non-gay. And this should make a difference in Judge Jones's view in rejecting the argument in that most relevant respects the constitutional analysis justifying heightened scrutiny for sex – also justifies heightened scrutiny for sexual orientation. Right. You see, because the argument is frequently made that sexual orientation and sex are analogous categories for this purpose. And he says, oh, no, the big difference is everyone can, you know, sex is such an obvious characteristic, but sexual orientation isn't such an obvious characteristic. And so the the two groups are very different in that respect. Uh, And so I look at that and I say, well, does he mean, you know, gay people can pass (laughs) and therefore they – if they stay in the closet, they won't be discriminated against. It but does paint with a very broad women brush. Women can't pass he, that way, and right. so they get discriminated against. You know, it's well. He's I don't know. He, well, you know, he's he's trying to come up with every argument he can to justify his result. Uh, but well, the point he's done is, that. He's the point is, that. this is Lambda will appeal this to the Ninth Circuit, and the Hawaii case where we also had a setback. That's also being appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and ultimately, the Ninth Circuit's going to have to make this decision unless the Supreme Court beats him to the punch by granting uh, review in the Prop 8 case and accepting the petitioner's framing of the issue and deciding the question. And I don't think I want them to do that because I think they're not ready to do that in the way we want. So you are speculating. Well, if I were to predict, I would say that if the court takes this case, they're going to try to do it on a narrower basis and and not have to rule on this. Uh, And that's hopeful thinking That doesn't end end the game, though. Because it doesn't end the game. I think it's it, it's a bit premature to to predict that the court's going to end the game in our favor at this point in history. I mean, we've got nine states in the District of Columbia as of January 1st with same-sex marriage. Uh, if you look at how they ducked the issue of the miscegenation laws, they had plenty of opportunities to deal okay, with that. How many that. states had repealed theirs at by, the time By the time lo- we got to Loving, by the time we got to Loving uh, – I think there were, you know, 15 states, for, somewhere in the teens of states that Not still had miscegenation 20s, though, laws. I mean. But uh, the point is that more than 30 states had abandoned them. Right. But right. at this point, we only have, you know, to, to the extent that they follow trends, social trends, uh, and, and 
maybe have learned a lesson from the abortion cases in Roe v. Wade that if they get too far out in front of the public opinion, there might be real problems. Now, there's also, although the election wasn't fought solely on social issues, right. uh, and, and, and one could certainly argue about that, um, they, we, the, the American public just did reelect a president who supports, who supports marriage. marriage equality. Um, okay, so, so we're going to... Maybe, maybe that'll make a difference yeah. to the court, too. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. We're going to leave it there. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a very different kind of case, a case out of Canada in Involving the issue of when non-disclosure of HIV status can subject someone to criminal liability. Stay with us. And we are back discussing a case out of Canada. The case is RV maybe or? Yes, and R is Regina. Is that right? Yeah, Queen Elizabeth. Oh, look at... And here I was thinking it was just like, you know, R. R. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, the crown, as right. it's referred to in the case. The crown right. is the involved crown. in this case. Uh, is it the queen of Canada. Uh, it's so great reading foreign case law yes. because you get little idiosyncrasies like that that Art Leonard can. Especially foreign case law in English. That's, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. But when they, I was, uh, I found it jarring when they said, the crown appealed. I said, yes. what is going on here? Um, okay, but let's get back to what's at issue. And what is at issue is. Uh, the non-disclosure of HIV status um, in the context of sexual relations and the circumstances under which that can amount to fraud, which would vitiate the consent that uh, you know otherwise would be present right. between and, between two and adults. subject the individual to criminal penalties, not just tort penalties. So you know the fraud aspect plays out in criminal law as well. Okay, so that's a good segue to the first question: is that as I mentioned, this occurs in Canada, but can you speak a little bit uh, to what we see in jurisdictions here in the states well, and more broadly on states, this kind of issue? You know, this is a recurring issue of public policy debate internationally. To what extent should the criminal law be used to try to deter HIV-positive people from subjecting others to a risk of transmission through sexual activity? Uh, to what extent should it be used to punish them for doing so? Uh, there are strong arguments that using the criminal law for this purpose may deter people from learning their HIV status because in terms of mens rea, in terms of proving criminal intent, you have to show that the person knew that they were HIV positive. Mm -hmm. So people can just proceed in blissful ignorance if they don't know they're well, HIV. I never and we really want to encourage people to get tested mm -hmm. uh, and get treatment. So, uh, But within... Accepting for the moment the paradigm that most jurisdictions have now, that someone who knows they're HIV positive uh, may be really subjecting themselves to serious criminal penalties if they go and they have sex with somebody without disclosing that so that the other person can decide whether they want to consent to have and, sex. And is that true even if um – in all instances, even in which a person, the other sexual partner, may never even inquire as to the status? I mean, because, you know, one, society yeah. could make the decision right. that the owner should be on everyone to be asking the question. I mean, does it make a distinction for that at all? Well, certainly there's a distinction between actively misrepresenting your HIV status and uh, merely saying nothing and whether the other party should ask. Because I've seen fa factual right. scenarios where the person says, I was never asked and I never right. told. If I was asked, right. I always told. Yeah, but uh, part of the counseling that is usually done in connection with HIV testing is to tell people you have an obligation to reveal your HIV status to sexual partners. And part of the debate is under what circumstances should someone have that obligation. And that's what this Canadian uh, Supreme Court decision addresses in a very interesting way because uh, the general rule in the United States in most states that have uh, had cases, adjudicated cases on this issue is – 
doesn't matter if you're using condoms. Uh, doesn't matter if you're practicing all the safer sex techniques. If you don't disclose your HIV status to somebody, you are potentially liable to prosecution for attempted murder or you know aggravated assault, more likely these days. Uh, but that's serious. You know, it's a felony. You can get a lot of years for that. Uh, and the Canadian Supreme Court says, okay, we've got to reconsider this issue in the light of what is now known. That someone who's HIV positive, who is taking antiretroviral you know, protease inhibitors, which uh, really reduce the presence of active virus in the blood, and so substantially decreases the risk of transmission. Uh, someone who's using a condom, which if used correctly, will substantially de decrease the risk of transmission. They say, is it possible that there are circumstances where someone is engaging in sex who's HIV positive, they know they're HIV positive, they don't tell their partner, but we're not going to hold them criminally liable? And, and, it, it, and it is fascinating. I mean, it does put the court, uh, in, in other contexts, we don't bat an eye at this, uh, about courts being in this very fact-specific inquiry. Right. Um, but it was very striking in this case about yeah. how the court looks to right because this guy factors. had sex with so many yeah, we, we should back, we should back up all kidding aside we should back up in terms of factually just as to set the stage here it, it probably is not surprising that these are the facts of the case but um this was a gentleman that is described as sort of living a, a raucous or whatever word you want to use a party house sort of existence where he enjoyed um you know sexual relations with uh, i think it was nine different women in this yes. case um in some instances, he wore a condom. In other instances, he did not. Um, and that eight of the nine women who were involved in this case, or at least that testified, said they would not have sex, have had sex with him if they knew he was HIV positive. And to go to your point, Art, the court sort of backs up and starts looking at, okay, let's look at the, the, the viral load for this gentleman, whether he used a condom, all these different factors to decide right. what the real level of risk in other words, was. the Canadian approach is much more sophisticated than the approach that most American state courts have taken on this issue. They say, all right, the science tells us that if someone is getting effective protease inhibitor treatment, their risk of transmission, even without a condom, is really low, but we don't think it's low enough to say it's not significant. With a condom and with well, effective right. protease treatment, it's so low that we can say it's not significant. And, and, and it's worth pointing out, I mean, I described the facts of the case right. as a man and, and women. That would matter too, right? Because they're looking yeah. at the actual baseline risk for vaginal intercourse. Right. You know, man, so the so, facts so of this case So what about anal intercourse or oral intercourse? You right. know, this, this would, would all matter facts. to this it would, court. It would matter to this court what kind of a case it was. Was it gay sex? Was it straight sex? Because the risk factors are slightly different. See, you know, I'm going to this, – this may not give enough credit to American courts perhaps, but to do this would call on American courts to do things that lots of Americans remain queasy about discussing, which is the conversation we're having right sex, now. Right. Yes, <laughs> to be talking about right. sex in but, general, but, you know, let alone sex that perhaps they're not familiar well, with. Well, I have to say, you know, having followed the Canadian Supreme Court on gay issues over the past 15, 20 years, I have to say they are much more sophisticated in discussing – gay law issues than American courts generally are. Uh, they seem to be much better informed on history. They seem to be much better informed on social science and, in this case, medical science. Uh, and they really get into the nitty-gritty details in a way. So the bottom line is if one is HIV positive in Canada, you can avoid criminal liability first, of course, by disclosing that to your sexual partner and getting informed consent. But alternatively, 
uh, by undergoing protease treatment, adhering totally with what your doctor says you have to do on the treatment, and using a condom for vaginal intercourse. And we don't know exactly what the rule would be for gay sex because they haven't decided that case yet. But, but it, they've set the stage for how yeah, they would go about right. and, and it. Right. And it sounds to me that if, if one is both taking the treatment, so you have a really low, probably undetectable viral load, and using a condom, they might say you don't have to disclose in order to get informed consent because the risk of transmission is so insignificant that this is not a factor that the other party could reasonably expect for you to disclose. But this is all speculation because, of course, they haven't decided uh, a same-sex case yet. But but on this point, then, what that means for this gentleman is that because in some instances he used a condom and in some instances he didn't and that was so important right. to the sort of combination of factors, the convictions premised on the, the the his actions that did not involve the use of a condom were upheld by this court as opposed to the conviction. Because right. earlier, I believe, the lower so, court right. had sort he of was, he was, held he him was, responsible across yeah. the board. Yeah, he, he ended up having one of his convictions vacated because he used a condom and was had protease treatment or something like that. So, you know, they went through all nine, and what were the circumstances? And he, the convictions upheld on some and reversed on some. Can I ask you a question I should know the answer to? Yeah. But maybe you do? Sure. Were any of the women in these... In were they these infected? Yeah. I don't recall. Okay, and, with, and that, that doesn't seem to matter. And that wouldn't be relevant, because yeah. the issue is whether there was informed consent. Right. And Clearly uh, it would go to... And the court says it, there's only informed consent if they knew of any significant risk. But I guess I, I wonder what the, the outcome would be if they were presented with all these facts... And a complainant who was, was infected. infected and they could trace it to him. That would be interesting. Yeah. It might not make a difference. Hmm. Well, we, I'm sure we'll we, will see, see. we will see we'll, a case, unfortunately, like that. Well, unless in, in Canada with the publicity to this decision, all HIV-infected people will religiously use condoms and adhere to their protease treatment in order to avoid liability. Or, as you speculated, there could or be some disclose. who decide. <laughs> right. Or disclose their status. Correct. Right. All right. So we will take a uh, short break. We'll return. We'll be discussing our final case of this podcast. It's a case out of Maine concerning the discrimination claims brought by a transgender student who alleged severe bullying by fellow students and discriminatory practices by school officials. We're back discussing the case of Doe v. Clenchy. Uh, it's a case out of Maine. And uh, we've, we've spoken a fair number of times on this podcast uh, about um, bullying of transgender students, transgender people more broadly. And despite that, I think the facts of this case struck me as pretty disturbing and, and also a little bit creepy when we get into the behavior yeah. of a student and his, uh, his grandfather, actually. We'll get to that. But to very briefly summarize, we have a student named Susan Doe in the complaint who is a biological male who is always identified as female – um, and while in the third grade in, in the main school system uh, in a town called Orano, I believe, Susan began using the female restrooms with the permission of the school. But when she reached the fifth grade, however, she began to be harassed by a male student identified in court documents as J.M. And it's fair to say J.M. had a campaign of harassment against Susan, including following her into the restroom, staring her down in ways that even made the teachers a little bit creeped out, um, chasing her in the hallway and insisting apparently at the direction of his grandfather that if Susan could use the girls' restroom, he should be able to as well. 
So there was some effort by school officials to deal with the harassment, but basically um, the story gets really um, interesting is the wrong word, but further problematic when the boy's grandfather contacts the, um, after being contacted about his grandson's behavior, in turn contacts the Christian Civic League, and there's a flurry of press coverage, and eventually Susan uh, is basically forced to stay home from school as a result of this action. And Art, I'll ask you as just sort of with that as the background, what do you make of the um, the facts of this case, and particularly the role played by J.M.'s grandfather? Well, before we even get to that, there's some other facts that I, I want to interject. One is that the school's reaction to all this was to tell Susan to stop using the girls' bathroom, and uh, they had a, a unisex single toilet bathroom that she was supposed to use that, that was used by staff, not the regular students' bathroom. So part of the case was her claim of discrimination because she wasn't allowed to use the girls' restroom. But the bigger part of the case uh, had to do with the conduct of J.M. and what the school did or didn't do in, in response to J.M.'s conduct. And, uh, I mean, J.M. was subjected to discipline by the school. Uh, there were there was a transfer involved, a class transfer. and uh, it took some time. There was contacting the police at, at some point. There was contacting the grandfather. The, the grandfather, turned out, was part of the problem. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a factually complicated case. But ultimately the issue is, because this was a lawsuit against the school, the uh, Maine Human Rights Commission joined in on behalf of Susan Doe and GLAD, the gay and lesbian advocates and defenders of Boston, were representing uh, Susan's parents, who were the actual uh, litigants as her best friends. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, it's worth stopping to pause and say, isn't it great that there are parents who are going to bat for their transgender kids? which is so heartening compared to what we would read years ago about the kids being rejected by their I'm, parents. I'm, I'm nodding my so, head in agreement, yeah. which can't be seen, so, but that's a, fa- that's so, a great point. So that's really neat. But, but in this case, I mean, the school did some things. They didn't do everything that the parents wanted. Uh, they, uh, they did say to Susan she had to stop using the ladies' restroom. Uh, and the case goes to the uh, main superior court. And the superior court judge here... Uh, and what's the judge's name? I'm blocking on this because uh, we have to, you know, we have to assign blame for these opinions, right? <laughs> so uh, the judge is William R. Anderson, Justice of the Superior Court. They call them justices in, in Maine, like we do in New York for our Supreme Court trial judges. Um, he says, "Look, the restroom thing. We look at the public accommodations law uh, where they." Uh, uh, banned sexual orientation discrimination and sex discrimination. They haven't specifically banned gender identity discrimination in Maine, and the court sort of treats this like a sexual orientation case. But he says they made it very clear uh, that schools can decide that restrooms are segregated by sex. And evidently they did this because the argument was made by banning sex discrimination in public accommodations. They might and the ability of places of public accommodation to designate men's rooms and women's rooms. So they they specifically carved that out in the statute. So he said the uh, school district did not violate the human rights law by saying to Susan that she can't use the ladies' room because she has male genitalia. And that seems to be the grounds on which they, they sort of don't want someone with a penis wandering into a lady's well, room. And, you, you know, know? It's, we, we have this conversation all the time. It's, yeah. it's striking how often this arises in the context of restroom, restroom use yeah. and how that seems to set off yeah. such, uh, such sometimes unusual or sort of um, 
hard to fathom reasoning or right. or, or maybe reasoning that I is mean, not particularly a, a, a fine-tuned. A point we should make is the annual Lavender Law Conference, which is the LGBT law conference that the National LGBT Law Association runs, they make a deal with the hotel or whatever hosting organization it is that for the duration of the conference, every restroom is an all-gender restroom. They put signs up. They say, please, everyone respect everyone else's space and privacy. You know, it seems to work. It doesn't seem to be a big problem. So uh, it's it's something for schools to think about. But and the, the Lesbian Gay Community Center here in New York has all-gender restrooms mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so on the restroom issue, the court said, you know, there's no violation of state law here. The bigger issue is whether the school did all that they should have done to uh, make it possible for Susan to attend school without harassment. Because ultimately this, this you know. case arises after – I mean Susan's family, they ultimately leave the school they ultimately move to, a different to get away from presumably – JM. JM yeah. and, and others who perhaps were participating, but mostly right. JM. And then that's the point at which the lawsuit yeah. is and, brought up. And, and the issue is uh, under, uh, under federal and state law, what is the responsibility of a school in a case like this? And the court says that uh, – the ju- Judge Anderson says – that the standard is the deliberate indifference standard. If the school is deliberately indifferent to the problems being encountered by a student in the position of Susan, then the school might be liable. But he says the school wasn't deliberately indifferent. They re- they responded to complaints about JM's activity. They uh, imposed discipline. They made transfers. They called in the cops. You know, they did things. Uh, whether what they did was effective is another story well, because evidently she had to transfer. And, and that's not an unusual scenario here right. that we're seeing where the, the actions taken by the school prove to fall short of actually solving the problem. I mean, right. one could say, well, the, the easiest thing for the school to do, I mean, they'd probably face a lawsuit from J.M.'s grandfather, but it would just be to remove him entirely, right? Suspend yeah, him expel for J.M. Exactly. for misconduct. <laughs> I mean, that, that might, the court, they might actually solve the problem here, and they, they didn't do that. But the court said... This is, this is a very high standard. It's a deliberate and different standard. Uh, I think uh, that GLAD and the Human Rights Commission are going to appeal this to the main Supreme Court, and maybe they'll decide that the deliberate and different standard is not the appropriate standard here. Uh, and if they do, then school districts will be on notice in Maine that they have to take stronger steps to protect uh, not just transgender students, that uh, – Female students get harassed. Male students get harassed. Uh, students get harassed based on race or religion. Uh, I mean, the laboratory for this is—I I imagine there are schools in the United States who basically, especially in light of recent events, who have adopted a zero tolerance policy for bullying yeah. across the board. And one would suspect that that probably does prove. Although sometimes effective. zero tolerance policies sometimes go a little too far too. Well, but fair so, enough. but but the point is, you know, this is a recurring situation. School districts should be aware that it's possible that they will have a transgender student and they should deal with the situation with sensitivity and effectiveness to make it possible for that student to participate. That's, uh, that's a good place to end on this case. Uh, we're going to take our final very short break. We're going to conclude with our Of Note segment. It's our brief opportunity to briefly note one last development in the world of LGBT legal news. Stay with us. We're back to finish the podcast with the Of Note segment. Art, it's all you on the Of Note segment. It's all the All Art segment. Go okay, for it. the All Art segment. Well, this is, this is a new lawsuit that's been filed in New Jersey, which I think is really neat. Someone really uh, is innovating here. Uh, a bunch of gay men who were forced as teenagers into conversion therapy by their Orthodox Jewish families 
with an organization called Jonah, Jews Offering New Alternatives for Healing. So this is supposedly to cure homosexuality. So these guys were put into this program, and their homosexuality was not cured to nobody's surprise. And now they're suing on a consumer fraud theory. I think that's really neat. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they can make important new law, not only for New Jersey, but for the nation. You seem so excited by this. I am. I'm always excited by innovative litigation. <laughs> Perfect. And on that note of innovative litigation, we will close the podcast. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting us at le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Thanks again. <laughs>